Hey there, today we have a special episode. We're republishing, with permission, an episode of the Standard Deviations podcast. It's a weekly show that looks at money, mind, and meaning all through a psychological lens. The host is psychologist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Daniel Crosby. In this episode, he interviews Robert Sophia, CEO of Snappy Kraken and host of the Steal My Strategy podcast. And he gets put in the hot seat to talk about marketing concepts and how they hold up through a psychological lens. Robert and Dr. Crosby discuss the five principles of marketing psychology, and this episode was just too good not to share. And if you want to hear more from Dr. Daniel Crosby and his interesting guests, check out the Standard Deviations podcast. We'll have more info in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Robert Sophia, CEO at Snappy Kraken and author of the recently released book, Blend Out, a book focused on helping financial professionals market like the best brands in the world. Within the book are contained five psychological marketing principles that are going to serve as the bedrock for our conversation today. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Daniel. Happy to be here. By the way, do you prefer Dan or Daniel? Uh, Daniel, please. Daniel, okay. Yeah. It's, Thank you, Daniel. I am grateful to be here. It's an it's an Alabama thing, man. I don't know. We just all go by our long. It's like we've got nothing else. So give us our full name. You know, I don't know. Everyone I know from Alabama, it's it's not Jeff. It's it's Jeffrey. We got to keep. Well, my dad is my dad is Robert also, and he goes by Bob. And people sometimes shorten me to Bob or Rob. I don't know why because I go by Robert. So. I don't, I don't want to do that to anybody else. Well, we're both two, we're two very serious men here today with our full names, having a great conversation about the psychology of marketing. But before we get into this, I'm going to crown you today with the best business name in all of fintech. I have to ask about the name Snappy Kraken uh, in a financial marketing, you know, a financial marketing landscape filled with mountaintops and sailboats. You picked this really quirky name. How did you blend out and decide on this as your name? Yeah, well, actually, that's it, right? I mean, we we have to practice what we preach. If we're going to teach people how to stand out, get noticed, attract attention for their business, we have to do that as well. And so when we set about naming the business, we actually have a rubric for business naming. In fact, I used to run an agency and I probably helped at least 200 firms brand themselves before I started a technology company. And that rubric includes includes a number of factors. Like it has to have a certain ring to it. It has to have strong consonant sounds, which make it more sticky. A little bit of alliteration Mm -hmm. is good. You know, it has to be fully available online. It has to relate to the business in some way. It has to make people curious. And so we went through that exercise and ultimately weeded out a lot of crazy ideas and landed on Snappy Kraken. And and uh, it's been it's been great for doing exactly what we wanted it to do, which is stand out and get noticed. Well, my daughter has a Snappy Kraken shirt that I picked up at a conference for her, you know, y- years ago, and she wears it everywhere. And it's great. It's a great brand. 
I find myself wanting to be a fan of the Seattle Kraken. I'm not a hockey fan. I've actually never been to Seattle, but the branding is just so cool that I, I just want to be a part of it. So you you did you did good. So let's talk about these five principles. You know, I love it because they're psychologically psychologically based. And the first principle is that you must get past the mental filter. So you give a great example of, of KFC running into a chicken shortage that, of course, seriously disrupted their business and the perception of their brand. And they ran a large ad where they rearranged the letters KFC into a different combination of those letters that nearly spells out a cuss word. It's a family show. We'll let the people do the math at home. And, and under, were, uh, under there, they said a chicken company with no chicken, not ideal. And then they went to, to talk about how they were working tirelessly to get the supply chain back on track. So this is an awesome story. It's hilarious, right? But I can also think of many examples of when brands tried to be edgy and it flopped, right? I think about Pepsi and the ad that they did with the um, Jenner girl, and, and it was about uh, trying to bridge Black Lives Matter and the police lives matter movements, and it just didn't, didn't work, right? So if we're going to get past the mental filter, how can we do it in a way that that doesn't land flat on its face or go too far? Well, that's a good question because that can happen. And that is a risk for sure with marketing in general. And context is a huge factor here because, for example, a logo, a business name is more risk than a single marketing initiative. But the principles apply. And I think like the two examples you give, the, the one from my book about KFC and the failed Pepsi commercial that was insensitive to a very important movement. Those are also highly different examples because we're talking about something that's really relatable on one hand, like everybody makes mistakes, like that can happen. We ran out of chicken. Well, everybody can understand when you run out of something. And then on the other hand, we're talking about something that is not relatable. It's actually something that is a, a disgusting problem with society that's trying to be resolved. And so you can't make light of that thing. Right. So that being said, most people are never going to go to that extreme in marketing or advertising, but it really comes down to relatability and context. Um, for example, our name Snappy Kraken. You mentioned it. It's very unique. It's very bold. And we can do that because we are a marketing company. I could not use the name Snappy Kraken if I was a bank. Hmm. It wouldn't work for a bank. If I was a financial advisor, I would not name my firm Snappy Kraken. But in context of marketing companies, it's totally cool to do that. I mean, look at MailChimp, look at you know other companies that have done creative things with mascots. Now, in the financial industry, it just so happens nobody's that bold, that unique, that interesting in their marketing, and that gave us an advantage. So for advisors, you, you do the same thing. You have to say, okay, in the context of my business, my space, what can I do that pushes the envelope beyond what my competitors do, beyond what is the norm, far enough so people go, hmm, that's interesting, but not do it in a way that's completely insensitive to what societal expectations might be. Is, is it also a call to have a diverse workforce? I feel like I feel like the people that greenlit the Pepsi commercial 
like perhaps there wasn't enough representation at the table among people of color, among young people, among among people who would go, you know, we may want to give this a second thought. It seems like also a, a, a call to have good representation within the organizations that, that we work within. That's a very astute observation. And you are absolutely correct. In fact, I was talking to someone recently about the value of inclusion in a business and diversity. And as a marketing company, for example, over the years, I've seen these situations where there's no diversity in the C-suite. There's no diversity in who's making these decisions. So they make decisions that fit from their own perspective, which creates a cycle where the people that are drawn to them, to their marketing, to their brand, also are from that same perspective. So you might end up with a firm that you know, all the founders are middle-aged white men. All their advertising appeals to middle-aged white men. They have a hard time getting women as clients. They have a hard time getting people of, co of color as clients. And everything in their marketing just looks like them. But when you approach these things, for example, in Snappy Crack, and we have our C-suite is, is literally, uh, it's half people of color. It's, it's half women. Uh, there is uh, just different types of representation throughout our company at every level of leadership and creation. So now you look at our content. Our content performs better than most marketing content because it also reflects all that diversity. It trickles down. So the, the more you have diversity of thought and representation inside of a business, the, the more likely you are to nail your marketing in a way that will also appeal to a, a broader swath of people. Yeah, we, uh, our, our companies need to, to look like the people we're trying to reach and serve. I, I love that. So the next principle is evoking emotion and being remembered. There is, of course, a ton of behavioral support behind this. Uh, we know that memories that are emotionally linked tend to be much easier to remember. Uh, incidentally, this is what drives a lot of bad investing behavior is that uh, scary, bad emotional memories are, are very sticky and, and tend to sort of crowd out the, the, the years where the market's up 20% don't seem to be quite as memorable as the years it's down 20%. How, how again, do we, do we walk this line though? You know, how do we walk the line between being sort of saccharine or corny or, or overly emotional and, and are there businesses for whom this doesn't work? You know, I think I've seen a lot of, I won't name names, but a lot of sort of the um, corporate behemoths really trying hard to appeal to emotion lately and, and do these feel-good commercials. And you're like, I, I know about your business practices. This doesn't, you know, this doesn't quite fit. So what are some, give us some nuance around evoking emotion. How do you do it and how do we walk that line? Yeah. Well, you mentioned a really important factor is the brand identity itself and the values of that brand and what they're known for. And some companies have tried, but it falls flat because people see right through it, to your point. So it has to be authentic. That is definitely one key. And yeah, you, you have to avoid the cheesy cliche efforts to evoke emotion. But the, the ways to do this really positively, like, just just for some examples, um, I'll use some from outside our industry, which I think are always helpful to learn from and, and some from inside the industry, but always deodorant. Okay. What is emotional about deodorant? Well, pretty much nothing. I mean, <laughs> if you stink, I guess that's a bad emotion you can evoke <laughs> in people. But, but you know, they, they went deeper than that. They thought about how teenagers start to 
need deodorant. <laughs> and they thought about how girls especially have a major drop in self-esteem in their teenage years. They lack confidence. A lot of that has to do with image. So what did they do? They launched a big campaign. It's one of the best campaigns of all time, in my opinion. It's called the Like a Girl campaign. And the whole campaign was, was using that expression, which is a negative expression. Oh, you throw like a girl. <clears throat> and they made it an empowering expression where they made like a girl a powerful war cry, a chant to boost girls' confidence to turn a negative into a positive. And this whole campaign, like a girl, had all these young, strong girls doing strong things about confidence and it's deodorant, but it was, it was massively successful for them. So that's an example of something that you might not think you could evoke emotion with, but they did very successfully. One of the things here, one of the nuances is of course, evoking positive emotions associated with your brand is, is the key. So now let's, let's talk about advisors. We wanted to do a campaign targeting people around our age, 30s, 40s, income earners with children. And the campaign was around the cost of raising children. Now, the way most companies approach something like this is they start getting pictures of families with kids. And they start talking about, you know, they, they'll, they'll use all the typical imagery. You know, here's the, let's use the, the cap, the college cap, because we're going to talk about college expenses. It's literal thinking. Well, what we did is we, we said, what are positive emotions from the childhood of people like this? in our age group. And we, we landed ultimately on video games and then Pac-Man. And then we created an entire campaign with imagery that was basically the little kids' heads through different age groups, eat like almost like Pac-Man style, eating, eating money, eating money. And it's a little animated campaign. And then in between the money, there's, you know, they, they go from child to adolescent and you see the expenses increasing and it was it was an educational campaign about the cost of raising children, but it was designed like a game that was nostalgic, that brought back fun memories from childhood. And the engagement on that campaign was through the roof for our clients. It was through the roof. They got more clicks. They got more reads. They got more inquiries. We took emotion. We used it in a positive way. And that's just those are just a couple of examples. But you, it, it takes a measure of creativity. It takes a measure of really knowing your audience. And, and when you do that, well, you know, really magic can happen. Well, what's, I think there's a couple of cool things about, about the example you just gave. I, it, it strikes me that it combines a couple of your principles, right? So one is you've got to bypass that filter. You know, you see the sailboat, the compass, the mountaintop, the college grad cap, and you just kind of go like, yeah, like I've seen this before. It's easy. It doesn't get past the mental filter because it's so, it's so expected, so you bypass the emotional filter and once uh, the mental filter rather, and, and when you're there, you appeal to this nostalgia, which is of course, deeply emotional. And you know, the other thing is it, it just takes a, a modicum of, of time and effort. It feels like to just say, okay, we're not going to do the typical thing. We're not going to do the obvious thing. Let's get some smart people in a room and figure out something that's slightly less obvious uh, it brilliant, brilliant campaign. So the third principle is again, you know, we <laughs> when we were going back and forth about this, you said, "Look, I've got these five psychological principles. Let me come on your show and and you tell me if they're true or not. They are all true, right?" The third, the third principle, it, it's one of the key messages in Daniel Kahneman's excellent book, Thinking Fast and Slow is that we have trouble uh, differentiating between messages that are often repeated 
and messages that are that are true. Uh, you saw plenty of this uh, during sort of the worst of the COVID-19 crisis, lots of bad ideas floating around that were sort of accepted as truth because they were often repeated. And, and there's this phenomenon in psychology known as the mere exposure effect that says the more familiar we are with, with a, a person or a name or a brand, the more likely we are to, to purchase or vote for, for that brand. Now, this is incredible. When you look at political stats, you know, you look at folks like Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton who are who are household names, even if it's negative, like, right, even if your association with the Trump name or the Clinton name is not positive, it's still a huge driver of voting behavior, uh, just your awareness. So your third principle is all about uh, building this familiarity through repetition. Talk to us about how you do that in a way that doesn't become you know, obnoxious again, because I feel like there's this line to walk with not wanting it to be so repetitive or, or in your face. Yeah, well, you're right. There is a line. And sometimes you don't know you've crossed it until it's too late. <laughs> but I think, first of all, you have to remember your goal. And we're in the business of marketing, which is in the business of growing business. That's what we're about. So if you're trying to grow business, you there's an old expression, you can't bake a cake without you know, cracking a couple of eggs. And, and when it comes to marketing, you, you have to be okay with a couple of unsubscribes. Hmm. The reality is that there are people who are going to think you message them too much and they're going to unsubscribe. But the people who like your content, who, who want your content, they're not. They're going to stay on and they're going to consume it. And those are the ones that are going to become clients. So first of all, I have to address that because a lot of advisors operate from a place of fear they say, well, I don't want to bother anybody, so I'm just going to send one thing a month, for example. So what we do is we rely on the data. And we've launched over 100,000 campaigns for financial advisors. So no single advisors launched that many campaigns. We've got data. Last year alone, we looked at 32.7 million data points. That means every social post, every email, every subject line body copy, formatting, color comparisons, image comparisons. We have a ton of data. And one of the most fascinating things that we found is that advisors on our platform launching an average of one email per month versus those sending out an average of four emails per month, four times the exposure. So a once a month average versus a once a week average. The ones with a once a week average had a higher open rate, a higher click-through rate, and a higher conversion rate. On average, they generated 39% more leads. 39% more leads. What does this tell us? More exposure, better outcomes, more likability, more interest. So the data shows that once a week is a good, healthy level of exposure that minimizes opt-outs and maximizes performance. So, you have to get over the fear, number one. You have to be willing to do the work, number two. You have to look at the data to inform those decisions, number three. And then fourth is personalization. Everybody's different. So your marketing software, if it doesn't allow people the choice to unsubscribe from some things and stay subscribed to others, I want this type, not that type. I want this frequency, not that frequency, then you know, you're also failing because you're 
it's you're making it a very binary single decision like it's yes or no on or off where it really should be how often do you want to receive communication from me and then work with people meet them where they are and if you combine all of that together you you can affect the best outcomes i don't know if you tested this experimentally but were you able to see where that saturation point is and it begins to fall off again like if if you sent 8 emails a month would people begin to unsubscribe at a, at a at a higher clip. Do you have any sense of where that line is? Yes, it's more more than once a week. Yeah. Now, it's not so diminutive that you you wouldn't want to do it necessarily. I mean, we we actually send two emails a week to our entire list. Um, so we get a lot of unsubscribes, but we also drive a ton of sales. Most advisors will never do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we've accepted a higher rate of opt-outs because the higher rate of sales justifies it. Um, but generally for advisors, the data shows that more than once a week, say they, they, they can't tolerate the opt-outs. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to consider that almost like once a week becomes like a friend emailing you or something that you value, whereas once a month is like more like an ad. So it's interesting to think that sort of a higher rate could almost psychologically uh, change the lens through which you view it. I can, I can see that, that being the case. So your your fourth principle is irresistible offers. So how do we make our uh, potential clients or clients an offer they can't refuse? What does that look like practically? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, an offer depends on the stage of the relationship. So a lot of the concepts in the book are talking about irresistible offers for prospects. I think with clients, you have to do that sometimes, for example, to get them to generate referrals for your business or to participate in certain activities, but this is really more about taking someone who is not yet a trusted confidant, a a relationship and turning them into one. And so they need a really strong incentive a lot of times to cross the line and actually start engaging with you. So there are eight principles. We don't have time for all of them uh, in this episode, but I'll I'll share a few of the most important ones with Mm -hmm. you. I think number one, it has to be around one big thing. So everybody wants a magic pill, a silver bullet, and you know we can't promise guaranteed returns in this business, but it's better to deliver on one big promise as opposed to a bunch of little ones. Don't crowd it out. Don't clutter it up with lots of concepts that confuse the decision. Make it about one big deliverable that they can benefit from. Another thing is, is about the, the voice of it, the promise that you're making. It needs to speak to a desired end result. So what does your market really want? If you can figure that out, you can create an offer that delivers on that thing, some type of education. Like you're, you're think of, of like the old uh, drill example. You don't sell drill bits, you sell holes. Mm. So you have to you have to sell them the desired end result they want. Uh, those are two big ones. And then I I think you know I, I if you want all eight, you can read the book. I'll I'll just pick one more. I think is really key is the the perceived value of the offer. Just because something is free doesn't mean it should look free. doesn't mean it should be positioned as something of low value. You really have to use professional graphics and imagery to establish a real monetary value in the eyes of the person you are trying to attract. So create a high perceived value. And of course, make sure you back that up with a high actual value. You don't want to bait and switch people. That undermines trust. But something that really has value and is presented that way. And uh, those, those are just a few of the the keys to this. 
I want to, I want to circle back on that first principle and I'm, I may not say it correctly. So you help me out here, but, but making it about sort of one big thing, making it, making not, not cluttering the message. If I'm a financial professional, what, what might be an example of that one big thing, given that we can't guarantee returns, which is, you know, perhaps the the one big thing that most people would like most of all, what's, what would be an example of that, of that one big thing? Yeah. Okay. So I'll contrast two examples, one that doesn't do it and one that does. Mm. Find out how to save money on taxes. That's boiled chicken. Yeah. It's just, right? I mean, it's it's not ultra-specific at all. Ultra-specific is find out this one tax law change that applies to high earners and on average helps them save blank percent right. in taxes every year. And by the way, I'm just totally spitballing this, but you get the idea. Uh, yeah, totally. Ultra specific to the audience, ultra specific on the outcome. You know, one of my one of my favorite examples of this is from a couple of years back now. It happened during the great financial crisis, but but Hyundai learned that of course people were apprehensive about making a big purchase like a car when people are losing their jobs right and left, the market's shaky. And so what Hyundai did is they said, look come, you know, come get your car, come finance your car. And if you lose your job, we'll take it back. Like, you know, deals off, like if you lose your job. So they took that one big fear, they read the room, they figured out that one big fear. And they said, look, we'll take that fear off the table, knowing that even in a horrible time, like the great financial crisis, still the the vast majority of people, especially professional people who can, you know, buy a new car, are going to hang on to their job. Uh, And they had incredible results of that. They, They crushed all the competition that year because they read the room, they understand that one big thing, and they made them an irresistible offer even if it resulted in some pain for them, I think occasionally, I think it's another good example of, of this very thing that you're talking about. So get the book, figure out the other five principles. You're a wise man. Uh, last one, uh, last one, we have signaling trustworthiness. And so I gotta be honest, your principles are all great. This is one where the name, uh, the phrase signaling trustworthiness caught me a little bit off guard. I wanted it to just like, be trustworthy rather than to signal trustworthiness. But then I thought maybe it's not enough to be trustworthy. Maybe we need to both be trustworthy and to signal that trustworthiness externally. So talk to us a little bit about the, you know, the the business of being a good person and then the business of sort of advertising that goodness to the world. Yeah. Well, I understand why that might strike you that way. And you probably even noticed in the beginning of that chapter, one of the things I said is, you know, people like Bernie Madoff have used these things to their advantage and they're not trustworthy. And, you know, <laughs> the best I could do as an author is to say, if you're not actually trustworthy, just stop reading the book now. Because, right, right, right. Uh, you know, that that really uh, is the crux of it. You, uh, There are a lot of deceptive people who appear to be trustworthy and that's a problem in society. But I can't solve that problem. What I What I know is, there are a lot of really trustworthy advisors who believe that being trustworthy is enough. And it is with the people who already know you and trust you because trust is built over time. And those people will give you referrals and they will you know, entrust you with all of their assets and you will have a good business. But when you're trying to really grow, one of the, the ways to do that is to scale everything. 
So you want to scale up the exposure of your business. You want to scale your processes to move people through your pipeline at a faster pace. You want to scale how quickly you can acquire new clients. That's the key. I mean, I, back between uh, 2007 and, and 2012, I, I grew a business from about 100 million in assets to almost 700 million in assets, which is a really rapid growth because we, we really focused on scaling. So this chapter was designed to try to help advisors show one area where they can scale the speed of their business by making sure new people that come in can say, this looks like a really trustworthy person. And there are a lot of ways to do that. I mean, I, I call them in the book signals of credibility. And the more time people see a signal of credibility, the more they the trust grows. So you can do things like the way you walk people to your conference room or your office for the first meeting, what do they see on the way there? What is on your walls? How many article clippings, quotes, pictures of you with people they know, charitable efforts that you participated in, do they see on the way? When they're in your lobby, do they have an opportunity to, to learn those things about you? When they go to your website, is it just a very phoned in bio or do you have a video profile that mm -hmm. introduces them to your family and your lifestyle and your interests and what you believe when you have your meetings coming in and out of your office? And let's say you have a, a prospect coming in and a client leaving. Do you just let them pass or do you stop and introduce them to each other and let the client say, oh, you're going to love working with Daniel. He is yeah. such a nice guy. He's helped our family so much, which they will say completely unsolicited just because mm -hmm. you made that introduction. There's an advisor I know they have behind their desk. They have just a wall of pictures of kids and clients come in. And they say, who are all these kids? And they say, these are the children and grandchildren of my clients. Wow. And it's their legacy I'm building for. See, these are the things they build trust and it's not, it's not a greedy, self-serving bait and switch kind of trust. It's just, if you are a trustworthy person, if you're running a good business, just make sure people know it and see it and create those opportunities because it will increase the speed of growth in your business and help people give you the credit that you've already deserved, that you've already earned from your relationships. Yeah, one advisor with whom I've worked closely has um, is is a Christian and has a strong bent towards trying to help um, fellow Christians achieve financial flexibility so they can go do mission work. And so when you walk into his office there on the right, there's a large map with pictures of all the missionaries who have achieved, you know, sort of this financial flexibility to go spend a couple of years abroad and, and do important um, charitable work. And it's just such a different it's such a different experience than when you come in and, you know, whatever, see fortune and worth on the, you know, on the table and see CNBC blaring in the background, sort of all the expected trappings of, of, of a financial advisor's office. You know, a few years back, there was this study that looked at the sort of uh, the, the trustworthiness, the perceived trustworthiness of, of various professions and financial professionals were squarely between uh, car salespeople and Congress. And I was like, this is such a brutal place to be when people like you and I work so closely with these advisors. I'm the son of an advisor. And you know that these are some of the most generous, compassionate, um, trustworthy, wonderful people who've dedicated their lives to serving, you know, these kids and these people. And yet we're not perceived as such. So I hope people will take a minute. So many of your suggestions, I think, just boil down to thoughtfulness. Like 
you know you need a bio, but don't phone it in, right? Like take it to the next level, right? You know you need the about us, you know you need, you know you need pictures on the wall, but don't have it be lazy prints, right? Like have it be, have it be something meaningful. So I hope people will take that that extra 10% effort that I think you you've spoken to so nicely today. So before we let you go, I had a couple of questions for you. There's a couple of personal ones. There's a couple, uh, a couple about the, the business that I'm going to present to you in sort of a lightning round. So I'm going to give you a phrase and you just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. All right. Okay. So first one is what's a well-loved ad campaign that you actually hated? Oh, man. I, I, that is hard. And I don't know if these were well-loved or not, but I got to tell you, I hated every single COVID-19 commercial where people were wearing masks and trying to look like they were having an amazing time. And <laughs> those just bugged me to no end. You're like, yeah, this isn't reflective of my experience. I'm not, I'm not buying it. Yeah. Okay. What about an under-recognized ad campaign that you thought was fantastic? Okay. Um, Burger King's Moldy Whopper campaign. <gasps> I don't know this. Yeah, check it out. So it is disgusting. You you actually watch a Whopper go from beautiful to completely moldy and rotten. But it happens on a time clock and it's explaining that Whopper uses no preservatives. Got it. It's called it's like the beauty of no preservatives and it just makes such a powerful point. It's it's like a train wreck. You can't stop watching it and you'll never forget it after you see it. So the other Burger King ad that I saw was brilliant was how many of their stores had burned down. So, you know, Burger King prides themselves on being flame grilled, right? <laughs> and they were like, here's the proof. And it was all these Burger Kings that had been torched. And they're like, <laughs> we told you, we told you we had a grill. Like, And it was, again, this totally sort of counterintuitive thing where they took this, you know, this point of pride and said, yeah, like, look, we weren't kidding. Like all these places burned down. Okay, great. I'll Flame, I'll, flame broiled. I'll be, I'll be looking up moldy, moldy Burger King after this. Um, if, if Snappy Kraken were to pattern its own marketing after just one other existing brand, which would you choose? Okay. So first of all, I would not choose any other brand. I love what we're doing with our branding and marketing, but I, I will, I will tell you there are, are a couple of companies and this is really contextual because it only applies to our business. We're a marketing business. So if I had to choose, I would actually probably say either MailChimp would probably be pretty high up there. They're amazing at what they do. I think the other might be Cash App, hmm. um, both really killing it with their marketing and branding, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with Cash App's marketing, but MailChimp does a great job. Atlanta, Atlanta's own. So speaking of Atlanta... What is the best part of living in Georgia? You moved to Georgia not too, too long ago. Uh, what's the what's the best part of living in Georgia? I could talk for a whole other hour about this. Oh, this is a good I, answer. Man, I love this place. I, I feel like I discovered a, a hidden gem in North Georgia. I mean, we the, the mountains and hills are beautiful here. The amount of creeks and lakes for boating and, and recreational activity, the, the number of hiking trails, this is a wine region. I had no idea. It, it It's very similar um, appellation to like, uh, you know, Italy and, and mm. other places in Europe. So there's tons of great wineries. I love that. There's everything is a little bit slower. I feel more relaxed here. People are more friendly. 
you couldn't, you know, I am going to get a vacation condo down in Florida because I like, I still like the beach and I'm, I do miss having a place near the water in Florida, but this is now going to be my primary home and that's going to be my vacation spot because I'll tell you, this place is, is a gem. I love it. Yeah. Well, thank you. We like it too. And, you know, I think any place where you're this close to some, I, I, having lived in Utah for seven years, I get roasted when I call them mountains, but when you live by some foothills, uh, and, and you're not that far from the water, uh, great food, great people. Georgia is a, a great place to live. Come, come and see us. Robert, thank you so much. You've given us uh, so many practical tips, these five principles. I hope everyone will go check out the book. If people want to learn more about the book, they want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you? Probably if they want to interact with me, Twitter's the easiest. I'm pretty active there. My handle's at, you know, at Robert Sophia. Uh, and I think the, you know, they can get the book on Amazon. And of course, if they're financial advisors looking for marketing help, snappycracking.com. Awesome. All right, Robert, thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.